Hello, this is Joel Porter, and welcome to the MI and Beyond podcast. Um, it's great to be back. We took a couple of months off uh, just to take a little break, and we're back. And this month, we um, have a topic that we have been sort of skirting around the edges of talking about in regards to motivational interviewing and where it fits in the, um, I guess, the political world or the political sphere, as we've titled uh, titled this episode. Um, Steve and I weren't sure how the conversation would go or where it would go. We invited our good friend Kendall Bond to come on and join us and um, had a surprise visit by, uh, by a few other people, which was fantastic to share their thoughts and ideas. Lots of uh, conversation in the chat, um, which stimulated more thoughts. Um, so uh, maybe this is part one of a, another conversation. Um, but we hope you enjoy it and um, have a wonderful holiday season. Well, we've got 45 people here. What do you say we, we make a story already? Yeah. Today, you ready to go? Thumbs up. All right. Well, um, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Um, I'm Joe Porter. I'm here with uh, Steve Rolick and Kendall Bond, um, and we're going to have a conversation about um, motivational interviewing and out into the bigger, bigger world. Um, Steve and I took a break for a couple of months, and it's um, it's nice to to be back. It was uh, it was good to have a little bit of a, a breather to get some work stuff done and just not have one extra thing to do in my life, but uh, but I'm happy to be back and I'm glad everybody's joining us. I'm, I'm well aware we are competing with a very, as I've been told, an important game in the World Cup, um, Wales versus England. Um, so um, that's a good thing we're recording it and we'll have it up on YouTube uh, before too long, probably in the next 48 hours. So, um, this is a Steve. I think this is a conversation that we've been kind of skirting around for a few months now, and in regards to some of the conversations that have been happening within the sort of MI world about where does motivational interviewing fit on a bigger in a bigger place in the world outside of the treatment room, or the football field, or the classroom. Or, or other places where motivational interviewing is, is practiced basically one-on-one -on -one or in smaller groups or in classrooms. And I know that some of our colleagues are wanting to bring motivational interviewing into conversations about climate change, about racism, around um, dealing with oppression, um, and a lot of the issues that we are confronting in the world today. Um, and so what we wanted to do is we, we wanted to you know, have, a, have a, and we wanted to approach this as a conversation, not only between the three of us, but with everybody in the larger audience, around thoughts and ideas about how motivational interviewing can fit into, into Places that it probably wasn't originally envisioned it would go, um, as far as far as I know. Um, and so, 
where to begin the conversation, um, I think will be an I think is an interesting start. And I had the uh, the pleasure to talk to Kendall last week, and we titled this motivational interviewing in the uh, political sphere. And one of the things that we were trying to figure out is what do we mean by political? And that 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 could be is are we talking about politics and government, or are we talking about is you know as some people I know will say that everything is political and everything has political connotations and meanings derived to it. So I think Kendall, I think that might be a good place to start the conversation is to talk is to kind of get some idea about what we're talking about when it comes to political and, and how do you think about that? What are you, what are your thoughts about that? Um so it's, political is such a fascinating topic, isn't it? And it can be dealt with in so many different elements and so many different ways. From my perspective as a behavioral psychologist, politics feeds into, you know, pretty much everything that we do, whether that's working with individuals or working on a strategic or macro level um, to support change. And I think what we were talking about when we were having the conversation last week was, you know, what do we, how do we define politics? Do we define it as, you know, this, we're supporting the individuals to change or are we supporting a wider um, concept of change? And I mean, you know, for, from my side, I guess we're talking about politics on a sociological perspective, aren't we really around themes and how people live their lives and choices that people make. And, and, from a political perspective, politics is often about supporting change, whether it's to move people uh, ideologically, whether it's to move people, um, you know, philosophically, whatever somebody might wish for, it's often with the momentum towards trying to support people to change or agree with you um, and, and your belief system. So, yeah, I, I, it was, it's an interesting topic. And I'm curious to hear what you and Steve think as well. You're, you're a lot more globally and politically aware than I am. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know about that per se. You know, I, I don't, the, so here, here's a little bit about what, um, when, I, when, I, when, I, when I talk with um, some of our colleagues, um, we, we, just, we were just in Chicago, a bunch of motivational interviewing geeks, um, having our annual forum, and so we get around and we 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 pick apart and talk about motivational interviewing from many different directions. And it was interesting to hear what people were really passionate about in terms of bringing MI into conversations about. Um, and I, I talked with a couple of people, and one was around everything from recycling to climate change. Um, and and so I could I could envision how that might look, right? In terms of somebody meeting in community settings or meeting door knocking with people and asking them what they think about you know climate change or or recycling or, or anything and having an individual conversation about that. Um, and and what kind of what, what kind of comes up for me in that is or, or is the question of is this motivational interviewing when I already have a decision that I want to facilitate a conversation 
hoping this person will move towards being more mindful about sorting out their rubbish into different bins or about, you know, moving towards an electric vehicle or, or whatever that would be. And is that a conversation where I'm trying to persuade someone to come on to my political point of view? Um, and if somebody says they don't believe or they don't, they don't believe the science or whatever it is, I mean, how do we go with that? You know, that, that's what I think about motivational interviewing. It's probably because I'm a clinical psychologist. And I think in terms of working with people individually, more than trying to work with people on a broader issue. Um, so I can get there, but I think people have something bigger in mind around how motivational interviewing can be used on a world stage. And I'm not quite sure what that what, what that would be, what that would look like, or or how that would come across. And I'm wondering if anybody has any thoughts or ideas about that. Or I mean, Steve, when you kind of formulated, designed, developed, um, grew motivational interviewing, did you have the political? Sphere. I mean, you know, even during that time, there was obviously, you know, extensive world division and politics going on. And, and did you have it in mind that it would be useful for those conversations and for those strategic changes or? No. Mm. No, that wasn't something that was on the board. Because I, I think I recall that, you know, given that MI is such a close cousin to to uh, client-centered, person-centered therapy, is that at one point Rogers had an, had an idea about bringing these conversations into places where there was political strife and wanting to get leaders to sit down and listen to each other. And my recollection is, is it didn't go that well. He tried it a couple of times or something, and it didn't play out the way he had hoped it would. Um, but I don't. I, I'm, I'm not sure if that's what people have in mind about motivational interviewing, like bringing, you know, Zelensky and Putin together and trying to facilitate a conversation about change. Or are we talking about utilizing some of the the spirit and the and the principles of motivational interviewing to engage with people about having conversations? You're asking me. I'm, I'm, well, non, well, like I'm just, I'm just putting some thoughts out there, and I, and you know, I'm, you know, we're inviting the audience to jump into this conversation too, because I don't think any of us would say that we're experts in this area. And like Aaron just put in, nonviolent communication may be another close cousin in this context. Very close. Very must be very close cousin. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Kendall's brilliant close question was really useful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Denise <laughs> and Jen are going to be crying at me right now. You've got a super, super clear answer. And I think as many of you know, listening to this webinar, we started in addiction treatment as psychologists and then saw widening relevance in other areas. And, you know, particularly healthcare. And then I think as many of you know, 
I explored this relevance with wonderful friends and colleagues in education and sport. And then most recently, Bill and I swapped notes about MI at home. So, uh, and I can, I can tell you what that's about. I don't particularly want to, but we explored it, the two of us. And um, so therefore, it's no surprise to have this question raised tonight. Well, if it's, if it's relevant in conversations at home, to some extent, I believe it is. Bill is not so sure. Um, and in education and in sport and in terror suspect interviews, for example, um, I believe it is relevant in those settings. Or, um, and it's not a panacea. It's, it's not a panacea. And in the world that we now are talking about, Erin's quite, quite right to say, look, there's nonviolent communication. So in what way might motivational interviewing enhance the foundation of nonviolent communication that's already well, well clarified? And, and, and I could speak to that, but I'm reluctant to do that right now. We're just raising questions. I mean, Joel might decide to bring some people in. Michael Flounds there. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Michael, hang on a second and I'll invite you, I'll invite you in. You see, Just Michael, a very nice thing Michael's done. He's saying, can I speak? Which is a lovely thing. We don't often get that. And I think it's lovely. And we've got Dave Rosengren with us. And we've got Mike Port. We've got lots of people. So um, I'm going to hold back and... Jolie, you could invite. Okay, Michael, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you a panelist invitation and just come on. Um, that way, you're not just speaking. We can see you when you talk because this is a different kind of webinar. This is kind of an explorative but webinar that we're trying to have. Hey, I'm Michael. Waiting for Michael. Can I just yep. say, Kendall's raised an ethical issue. I'm not sure how clearly you did it. How how, how much you intended, but what right have we got to change the views? of someone else, okay. Um, but how wonderful it is to see Michael and um, tell us, Michael. Good to see you guys. Really nice to see you, Steve, since we missed you in Chicago. But yeah, I was gonna also just tell a little story and that raises an ethical point. So, you know, there are two of us here from Iowa, a new colleague, Ian Lee. And so she has been in Iowa, I think, a long time. I've been in Iowa a long time. And as even the internationals probably know, the non-Americans, Iowa has played a special place in American politics for quite a while because we had the caucuses. So all the candidates come every four years and they shake everybody's hand. And we get to know them. And I've been involved for many, many years in the caucuses. And this year, or the last presidential election, Maybe it was two ago. I think it was 16, actually. Uh, the, the candidate that I was probably supporting, they, they got us together and they said, guys, we're going to do it differently this year. We're not going to tell people that you should vote for our candidate. We're not going to do that anymore. We're going to do these things called house parties. And we're going to talk to people and invite them and ask them questions about what they're interested in. And, you know, I'm hearing the whole time, oh, I get it. 
you know, so they're going to evoke and they're going to respect autonomy and they're going to do all this stuff. But, but what were they really doing? They were really trying to get, find a different way for, to get people to vote for their candidate. So they were basically, and I went up to the organizer afterward and I said, do you guys know anything about motivational interviewing? Because a lot of the stuff you said there sounds a lot like what we talk about in motivational interviewing, except it's the car salesman variety, except it lacks compassion and it is basically using these techniques in order to try to get people to do what you want them to do. And from a MI perspective, that's not something that we can ethically support. So you just need to be aware of what you're doing. So I just thought I would throw that into the conversation because this was not an overt attempt to use MI per se in politics, but it was an example of what I think we want to avoid. So I'll stop. Thanks, Thank you very much. That was that's that's that that kind of adds a, um, a story, a real life story. To I think what I was trying to say is, and what David put in the in the chat around um, supporting autonomy with people is that I think a lot of people for a long time have been utilizing things about motivational interviewing. Yeah. Um, that probably they didn't know a thing about motivational interviewing, but they're utilizing some of the same principles and um, spirit that we utilize in MI, but they have a different agenda. And the, the importance of transparency. If we're going to do this in some way, it seems like transparency is really, uh, really needs to be underscored. That's an interesting point actually Michael there was a big conversation again between some minties around transparency on a micro and macro level um, of when you're working with individuals on a one-to-one basis how much should we be transparent as therapists um, and as clinicians to say hey look let me share with you where I'm at this is what I believe or what 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 I'm working for whether we should be sharing about our organizational agenda um, if we're employed by organizations and on a political sphere, when do you have that conversation as well? If you're talking about politics on a kind of more polarized, you know, right, left mentality, do you share that? Or do you look for the commonality to start with and then share it? When is it appropriate to bring in transparency? Because does that increase or decrease engagement, depending on when we do it, whether somebody feels psychologically safe or not? And so I'm curious what you would think to that in, in the house parties, when would it have been appropriate to say, hey, can I share with us when what we actually want from this? When they walk through the door, before they get there, like halfway through, like what? when do we share transparency for our engagement purposes? Oh, that's interesting. At what point do you disclose? You give full disclosure, which gives people choice. Yeah, because otherwise you're not giving them true autonomy. Because hmm. I often think when I do MI, when I'm working with a client, right, and I'm doing motivational interviewing, I'll ask them, so would you like to have a conversation about changing your drinking? Mm. You know? You know, they, and, and, and then we'll see where they, if they go, no, then I'm going to go, okay, well, would you like to talk other than that? 
you know, but, but I want to let them know that we're moving in a particular direction and I'm not going to MI them, so to speak. And I guess it, it depends what your target behavior is then. Um, because, I, you know, I work with some top level politicians and when is it appropriate for me to bring in that perhaps their political agenda is completely opposed to my own political values? And how does that work in our relationship? And I bring that up quite early on. Uh, if that is the case, because I mm. think it's important, but I'm not working with them to our target behavior isn't to get them to think in my way of thinking. Um, my target behavior is to work with them for why they've come to me. Um, but then on a political level, if we're using motivational interviewing, whether it is around climate change, whether it's about spending habits, whether it's about, uh, you know, racism, whether, you know, these, these really fundamental things that are related to values. I believe that transparency is key, but also so is commonality. Mm. And there, I wonder if there's a discord there sometimes. I, I remember an episode we did early God, last February or so about vaccine hesitancy. Yeah. And motivational interviewing seemed to be the go-to intervention, so to speak, for working with people with vaccine hesitancy. And there was there was a little bit of tension whilst, you know, it it was a good direction to move towards. What about people? who weren't just hesitant, they were committed to not getting vaccinated. Yeah. You know, or not respecting people's own personal, spiritual, scientific beliefs around vaccination or around specifically the COVID vaccination and simply going in and boring in and trying to get them to shift. Yeah. That that was a, something that's that, you know, was an interesting discussion to watch unfold and how people thought and felt about it. Adam Grant, I think, has done quite a lot of work on, on, on that topic as well, hasn't he? And he talked about the vaccine whispering and that motivational interviewing was very key to that. But I think it also is that highlighting of, is somebody vaccine hesitant or are they in vaccine, you know, kind of complete denial? It's like, where are they at within that political um, or, or yeah. decisional point? It's a great example to raise that. Uh, vaccine hesitancy, because clearly the practitioner, so to speak, or the community worker or whomever, has a clear commitment to getting this person to change their mind. Okay, so it's a great example. And the journey I went through uh, speaking to Adam Grant and then working with a vaccine whisperer, whose name's uh, Arno Gagne, he's in Ottawa, I think it is or that province of Canada. Uh, and Arno sent me a video or two. And I was deeply moved by the quality of his respect for the autonomy of the person he was speaking to, by his tremendous compassion, and by his transparency. Mm. So I have no hesitation about using motivational interviewing in, in, in this kind of conversation, but clearly signposted by some of those concepts I've, 
ideas that I've just mentioned. Um, and I see the way Arnaud conducted himself as a potential model for conduct in the political sphere. So I can give voice to that, but it's just my view. I, I uh, you know, we got a problem, which is that there are these conversations take place in the political sphere all the time, or even worse, they don't take place that in workplaces and in different environments, people are subject to, to racism and prejudice and misinformation. And in vaccine, vaccine hesitancy was one example that this is a reality for people. So any idea about having a conversation that's productive, I think is a damn good thing. And if MI can contribute to it, I'm absolutely all for it. And uh, one of my sons is into this field of misinformation. That's his specialty. And he picked up a quote from one of Obama's speechwriters, um, which rings true when I look at Arnaud Gagne conducting himself with someone who doesn't want to take a vaccine. In his case, it's in pediatric practice. It's not necessarily COVID vaccine which is this, which is the best response to a lie is not a fact, but a deeper truth. And when I watch Arno conducting these conversations, he's exploring the potential for a deeper truth that this person might entertain in the light of the information that he's offering them with complete transparency about his own view. I don't know if that's helpful. I think that's beautiful. Mm. And I think that's just such a, a, a fantastic quote. Um, and I think that just reading up, if I can read some of the stuff that people have put in the chat box as well. Um, oh, you know, Carrie has said that, you know, is this discussion taking the equipoise to the guide versus guide debate to the macro level? And Barnabas? Um, is saying it sounds to me like the interviewer is always an agent of some enabling institution. That's interesting to use the words enabling institution. Um, nevertheless, plausibly a person inviting the person to become in their best ways. So in the politic, in politics, the interviewer represents the non-private political institution. Private to private com communication doesn't seem to me to be MI. I wonder what anyone thinks about that. And Eva is asking if you can expand on what do we mean by the deeper truth? I guess uh, I couldn't, but I, an example would be great. If anyone could think of one. Well, the, no, the, de the deeper truth is what is really important to this person. Yeah. Okay, so there's no such thing as what is the deeper truth. The, deep, the deeper truth is his own person's realization and decision about what's really important to them. That's the deeper truth. And in the case of the vaccine whisperer, so to speak, what Arnu is getting at here is tuning into what is really important to this person, offering to share information about the vaccine and giving them the space and getting out of their way while they decide what is the deeper truth for them. So, Part of that seemed a little context dependent because I'm, I don't I wouldn't 
think Obama's speechwriter would be thinking about that if you're talking about misinformation. No. But I can see definitely where you're coming from, Steve, in regards to something more personal. Well, these people would have been coming into these vaccine conversations entertaining lies, misinformation, being influenced by misinformation. Okay. So they would have been adhering to untruths about these things. Okay. And I can, that's not difficult to, to extend that into the political sphere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, Carrie, that was that was helpful. That was a nice little interchange. Michael just disappeared, yeah. which I thought was a you know for a British person, it's frankly rude. I'm only joking. Just one of me. the things that I just want to pick up on, and what you said there, and this is where I believe MI is so pivotal, and and maybe something to consider. Um, when we're thinking about MI within the political sphere, for, for me, and this is my personal take on MI, and many people out there might be screaming and wanting to uh, be very angry at me at this point, but for me, one of the big things that MI helps with is conversations around values. And for me, value-aligned action is absolutely essential. And often what I see in a lot of my patients is there's a discrepancy between their values and sometimes their behaviours And when I see the most influential and beautiful change happen, it's when somebody starts to shift their behavior towards their values. Uh, And we all deviate. We all we all deviate for many different reasons, for trauma, for um, different contexts that life throws at us. And sometimes through political trauma that has been put to us, uh, whether that's poverty or marginalization or things like that, we have to choose our behavior for survival. And so it's interesting when we talk about the deeper truth and for me, where MI fits is having that beautiful conversation about drawing out the values. And I think Carrie's just said an example here is if we're continuing on the vaccine thing uh, theme, that if somebody says, I don't want my daughter to get the vaccine, I want her to be able to have kids in the future. A response could be you want the best for your daughter. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, then the question becomes, can I share some information with you about my understanding of what might be best for your daughter, knowing that it's completely up to you to make up your own mind about this information? Mm. And if you've connected well enough with somebody to get to the point where you can offer a, a, a brilliant reflection like the one that Carrie offered, they will probably say yes, and they do, because they trust you. But they need to feel that you're 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 curious, you're co- compassionate, you're calm, that you're not about to argue with them. And if they feel that, they will feel safe enough to be brave and digest what it is you have to offer, whatever. So now, if I don't know if this is helpful, Kendall. Now the question becomes: Am I not in a state of neutrality here, or am I? purposefully going to uh, reinforce change tool. Good question. Okay, so, and I don't think, yeah, so I raise that as a question because if you you look at Arno Gagne's conversations, they've got this very neutral feel. In other words, the bigger the ethical itch, so to speak, 
the more transparent you need to be and the more neutral you need to state of mind you need to be in. Yeah. So if you're speaking to an, uh, you know, if I was speaking to an outright racist, fascist, anti-Semite, okay, I would be emotionally quite aroused. So it's hopeless. I can't begin with them. I so I need to calm down. And, you know, there's that wonderful example of Daryl Davis, who went in, who's a black musician, who went into Ku Klux Klan. And it's worth studying what did it, did he do anything beyond compassionate communication? I, I it's worth, worth having a look at Daryl Davis. And you, mm, no, that's fa- what he does is fascinating. Yeah. But I, if, I'm, if I'm faced with somebody who's an outright fascist, racist, anti-Semite, I'm going to have to not only calm myself down if I'm going to use MI, I'm going to have to be, there will be a hell of an ethical itch to get this person to change. So I'll have to be quite transparent. Sorry about that, boy. Uh, Don't worry about it, Steve. This is a family <laughs> show. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, but I think that's a part of it. You know, I think that's a big part of it because when when people are talking about bringing MI into areas that people hold opposing views to, and the goal is to try to make the world a better place, no matter what. From their perspective, no matter what the issue is, that capacity or ability to be able to park my stuff on the side so I can have the conversation that gives someone the opportunity to get to a deeper truth, even if that involves giving them some factual information to try to touch on what Pam's question was. Because truth is subjective. But facts are objective. And this comes into the, com- the the talk that was done on socially engineered trauma, which was so fantastic as well, was around that data. And I suppose links into as an MI clinician, where do you know where we have to be very, very self-aware about what our values are and, and what we are. But also, I guess then it's also uh, it, it's bringing up for me when we're bringing in values, they are emotionally connected. And as yeah. Steve says, there's only so much that we can share if somebody is emotionally aroused and we're trying to create a safe psychological safety for somebody. And that's really challenging then, isn't it, as clinicians uh, about where where does it fit within that that world? So, Kendall, there are going to be people going. What is socially engineered trauma? Thank you. Yes, there are. Do you want to answer that, Joel? No, I think you have a better handle <laughs> on it than I do, given what we've talked about. <laughs> um, so, well, th- this comes from. I don't remember. I feel really bad. His name was David. Um, now, does anybody remember what his surname was? Because now I'm not giving him or the woman who was meant to be presenting the credit that they deserve. Um, I'm sure somebody will pop it in the chat to help me out. Somebody will pop it in the chat, don't worry. Um, yeah, thank you. But there was, um, thank you, Carrie, amazing. Yes. And do you remember the lady's name as well, um, who also was meant to be there, but she couldn't make it? Wendy. Uh, yes. Wendy. Thank you, Carrie. Um, 
so socially engineered trauma is this idea that um, through social policies, through strategic development, through all of kind of the infrastructure that's created, we create trauma that continues and then perpetuates and informs or influences people's behaviours, which perhaps are not so um, classed as healthy. Can I put that in inverted commas? Um, from a, a, a social perspective. And Gabor Mate also talks about the fact that institutions and organizations perpetuate trauma by their very nature of how they work. So, you know, if somebody's working towards abstinence, for example, does that perpetuate trauma because it puts people in certain conditions if there's a conflict between pay by results and outcomes? And when we're talking about socially engineered trauma, we think, well, what, what David and Wendy's talk was also about was how much should we as clinicians um, and within an MI world be having that transparent conversation and also saying this is the reason why you might be like this is also because there have been policies and you know discrimination and marginalization and corruption that have led to the world creating a situation where this is possible for you. Um, does that? I don't know if that explains it in anybody else. David's putting it uh, there as well. Thank you, Marion. Um, redlining, yeah. which limits people's ability to purchase a home, which in turn influences the ability to build economic resources, would be an example. Yes, thank you, David. Thank you. And another example actually would be, um, you know, in America, I know there was a big study done um, from a behavioral economic perspective of why millions of people were eligible for uh, school meals and yet millions of people weren't accessing them. And when they looked at why weren't people accessing them, it turned out that the policies required people to cite tax references to go to the post office at certain times to fill out these arduous, complex forms for people that couldn't necessarily weren't necessarily literate or English as their first language and so it created all of these barriers um, and, and then children in effect were going hungry and and starving so it all for me is where it all starts to feed back to motivational interviewing and why we should be having these conversations at top levels as well but where does motivational interviewing fit into that it's not clear. so here's here's the antidote from one of one of the things that David thought was helpful is that when you're working with people who are experiencing um, this form of trauma, socially uh, institutional trauma, um, one of the helpful things could be um, working with them to become socially active in terms of trying to push back against those forces which are perpetrating the trauma. Yes. Okay. So one of the things that I think David said was when we make a referral to charities, grants, support groups, we could also consider making a referral to an activist group. What's that work for, Steve? Sorry? So what's that work for? You, you looked like that surprised you. No, I'm going to keep quiet. I'd rather just try and absorb what you guys are saying. Okay. Well... It, I think I think if you think you know, well, I think if you think of it from an MI perspective, right? And I I'm not a I'm not a sociologist or a social work background in terms of thinking about things in that way. 
you could say, well, what we're trying to create is a menu of options for the person. That yes, you could go see this group or that group or this counselor, but also you could see this group here who's trying to create difference and change in how these uh, laws have come about you know, what, and what's happening. And I think the, I guess if I had to kind of take it a step further would be that activating, um, pushing back or, or, or pushing towards change can be healing in itself for the person that as opposed to being a, a passive recipient of this. In other words, you know, get out, get on the streets, do what you need to do to do that. And then in and of that becoming activated will help people with the symptoms that they're experiencing. Now, I could see doing that from a, from a menu of options perspective, like here's things that you could do. Um, but if I say, well, I think here's what you should do, you know, that's going into persuasion in terms of motivational interview. Yeah, I, I, it's challenged me uh, quite significantly that that conversation, and it's something I'm still talking about and reflecting on quite a lot um, from a trauma perspective. So I work a lot with people in trauma, and whether when somebody is in a traumatic state, what our role is um, to support change. Now, even when somebody's written here, like is uh, Pam has said, when having a conversation about policy development that's when I'm more likely to bring in um, conversations around MI and trying to create that. Again, if you've got um, shared agendas, you know, from a political sphere. So my dissertation was on, can you have joined up working? Is, is joined up working truly possible? And that's where motivational interviewing really fit for me was because if you, again, create that shared agenda, then can you then start to create policies that influence positive change um, and bringing in that compassion side of it? But often I know that politics, if we're thinking about the political sphere more on a, um, you know, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? I can't think right now, but, uh, you know, in, in a governmental perspective, then a lot of people feel that compassion is missing from politics. Um, you know, I know, goodness me, who would have thought that? Uh, and, you know, and, and that's when I start to question, well, actually, that motivational interviewing could be really useful. It's like, well, let's bring back the compassion. But then does it still have that stigma attached to it within the political sphere? And I know with some of the clinicians, uh, with the politicians that I work with, they don't like that word. It's seen, Which word, compassion? Yeah. It's, it's still very much seen as a soft um kind of great unfortunately I don't know what anyone else thinks and Carrie's saying that also yes the ask for the ask for ask um and the EPE was essential um in the role, role of social policies in their individual situation absolutely yeah your microphone's off Steve yeah it's music to my ears I must say, I, I, what is it that motivational interviewing, as opposed to kind of compassionate listening, can provide? Um, I guess that's one question. Can you repeat that? What is it that MI? What is it that MI specifically can 
provide in addition to compassionate communication? Mm. Okay, that, that, is, that is a question that, uh, you know, as, as Dave Rosengren knows, I've been trying to persuade him to work with me on, on, on this in relation to parenting. Um, for probably 25 years, we've both sort of given up with each other. So I took it up again with Bill Miller, right? And we, we, we he's, yeah, he, he was a bit more conservative than me, but where we definitely agreed, um, David said he fired himself. Yeah, I know you were hopeless. <laughs> where, where, where Bill Miller and I definitely agreed was that Focusing MI at home on behavior change is usually more in the interests of the parent, the vested interest of the parent than the child. So this kid behind me, his tidy room, right? That's my stuff, not him. There's no deeper truth about a tidy room for him. I'm, you know, we're kidding ourselves, right? But what I tried to argue with with Dave, with 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 Bill was that if your focus is on the growth and well-being of this person, and that this is a person at home, then MI could be dead relevant. Um, so in the political sphere, what is it that MI can contribute that's beyond compassionate communication? And I feel like, you know, the, the, there are a few things. The way we define the spirit of it is actually... It's a contribution to say, don't confront all the things you don't do. You know, don't be clever. Don't do things to or on people. Don't argue, persuade, get aroused, but, but stay calm and curious and compassionate and listen and connect with someone. And I think that is a little bit of a contribution that's MI that's, you know, reasonably, beautifully emphasized even though elements of it are not unique to MI. Confrontation leads to resistance. That's something that we picked up from uh, the family therapy field that I think is very useful, okay? But then, you know, as Michael Flan says, MI is directional. So now here we have a, a question, you know, what right have I got to kind of, when I, if I meet this racist anti-Semite, you know, um, and I think there's a way out, and I think the way out has is has was beautifully illustrated in the vaccine hesitancy thing, which is that if you connect with somebody and in a, get on that sort of same wavelength with them, uh, then you can get into neutral, so to speak, get into kind of neutral a neutral position, so to speak, and offer information. And I got a funny feeling that that's probably what Daryl Davis was doing. But it was music to my ears to hear a somebody mentioning ask, offer, ask, or elicit, provide, elicit. Because that offering of information to somebody who's in a calm and receptive state, precisely because you've listened to them and you haven't argued, is a contribution of MI. Because when you exchange that information, you're likely to hear change talk. And then if that's where the energy is coming from within them, because they're accessing some alternative or deeper truth, and you reinforce that change talk, I don't see any ethical problem yeah. myself. Yeah. But there you go. that's just one way of looking at it. 
I, I, I completely agree with you, Steve. I think, you know, and I'm sure many people in, in the audience do as well around, around that, that element of it, you know, it's, it's not necessarily unethical and it does create that contribution. I also wonder what people think as well about the idea that, you know, when we have these oppositional reactors in our brain, which are give, when we give information that's unwanted, then it creates this neuro, you know, uh, cognitive neuroscience element of the oppositional reactor to kick in. And that's why for me, EPE is also really helpful from some of the research that's been done that holds people in psychological safety to obtain new information and doesn't activate the amygdala um, and put the amygdala in the, in the hijack role. And so if we're going to be talking about politics and anybody creating a change which can increase you know, the amygdala hijack and increase that kind of oppositional reactor to step in. And we use MI as a beautiful conversational tool, but still holding autonomy that whatever you decide is still your choice at the end of it. Then I think that's absolutely wonderful because it's it's an adult to adult conversation that's taking place. And, and that's what we we would like more of. And that's why I love MI is I feel like we're pulling people often. Now I'm talking if you're working with adults, into an adult adult rather than an adult child or an adult threat system um, that somebody's value system is being threatened. And often that's when I see conflict arising from a political sphere as well. Pam's here. Save me, Pam. Yes. Yes, Pam's been Pam, welcome. It's great. It's great to see you. Your microphone's off. Um, and don't worry about it. And this is Pam from Boston, um, a, a good friend of, of many of us. And you've been quite active in the chat, so I wanted to hear your voice. <laughs> well, well, that will teach me. Um, and uh, the U.S. <laughs> is up one nothing. I have that on another screen, so just saying, just saying. Um, no, I'm fascinated by this um, discussion because it seems, um, and I'm obviously coming with my biases, you know, grounded in um, the United States of the lack of discussion, the lack of conversation, the talking at rather than talking with each other. Um, and so, um, so many of the complaints um, uh, that I hear um, and that I have about politics is things aren't getting done. And um, uh, so that's that, that that's what was resonating with, with me as we were talking about, you know, Steve says, well, what does this have to do? What does MI have to do with politics? And um, then talking about policy development. Um, having a conversation that is am I informed the spirit just just seems to put everybody at the same table potentially uh, my hope is my Pollyanna view I guess <laughs> you can make me disappear whenever you want no no I, no I love that <laughs> so, how, so how does that work for you like when when you're in when you're working in your role and, you know, or, or in the field that you work in, when and how do you think MI shows up? Well, um, I think uh, in, the, in a world, um, you know, I work at Boston Children's Hospital and in a world where um, there's um, a demand for high quality care and there's also a um, demand for fiscal responsibility and there are competing uh, needs and goals in the community, there are multiple interests that come together at, at a table. And 
to be able to, for people to be able to come and share their values and acknowledge that not everything um, can be done at the same time. Um, it's, those, it's that give and take and respect. I guess it's the word of respect um, that everybody is well-intended, sort of that assumption. Um, that's that's nice. a general general sense. I'm yeah. not in politics. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Hey, hello, Carrie. It's good to see you. Um, your microphone is turned off, just so you know. Um, we'd love to hear what your thoughts are because, like Pam, you've been very active in the conversation. Mm. Thank you for helping me as well, and as all. Oh, I can't. We still can't hear you, Carrie, unfortunately. No. Is that any better? Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Sorry. New new headset. Figuring that out. Um, first of all, this is so fun. I feel like we should get together every week and have these uh, discussions <laughs> here. Um, but I, you know, really thinking about this, I put this early in the chat. I I'm struggling with the kind of ethical itch around this. It's it's still there for me, and for me, it it I think a lot of it comes to the kind of equipoise versus guiding. Um, stance that we're taking in these various situations. And even, yeah, I work in vaccine education. And so there's some, you know, I think the politics are still <laughs> definitely mixed in there. And so I think about this scenario where I, I might say, like, if I'm trying to be transparent with a group, and I might say, you know, I'm pro-vaccine and I respect whatever decision you make. Um, but then if I proceed to then end the conversation, I'm, I'm then cultivating change talk and softening sustained talk, that that sounds that feels sneaky to me. Um, it it doesn't, I mean, I, I and I am still, you know, I still feel deeply like I'm respecting their decision and I'm still guiding. Um, and I think when it comes to the political sphere, I think, um, you know, this is a tough one because we're, I think we, even if we say we're neutral, we might seem, you know, try to come across as neutral and seem neutral, but we're still going to have our own, um, you know, opinions about what we hope other people will think and do. And, you know, it, we'll, we'll be trying to sway people in that direction. And so, yeah, I, I struggle and I think about these kind of moving MI into these other areas where um, I don't know that it's really our place to try to sway people in one direction or another. I'm, I'm always, I'm absolutely for the, you know, the compassion, the reflective listening, but when it comes to the guiding, um, you know, I can think about people from various, you know, working on various political issues where I would really struggle if they came to a training I was doing and said, I want to use MI for, you know, this stance or that stance. Um, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Kendall. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. And that, that ethical itch that you have, I think, is something that a lot of us will battle with at, at different points and around different conversations and different topics that we might have. Um, I guess if I can share what comes up for me, um, actually links back to the socially engineered um, trauma conversation that David and Wendy brought up, and it's really been playing on my mind, but also some other conversations around transparency. 
um, is we can share facts, we can share data, uh, not and um, and sharing data doesn't have to come with um, too much guiding. You know, we can we can share that data. What we can also do is have that conversation around thoughts aren't necessarily facts, you know, from a cognitive uh, perspective, and that perceptions aren't necessarily facts. And that sometimes as human beings, one of the hardest things to get our heads around is our own perceptions isn't necessarily reality. Um, and often the conversations that I'm having with people more in a political sphere is having those conversations to start with around the, the discord between perceptions and facts. And if I can have those conversations, I'm still not guiding because I'm still supporting their autonomy that ultimately they get to choose. Now, I suspect from what the little I've read of what you've shared, Carrie, you're exceptional at what you do and you give it a lot of thought. And I suspect that you really hold people's autonomy and you challenge your own biases when they present. Um, so, so are you leading? Is it, so, where, so what is it you're guiding for? Is, are you guiding for increased knowledge or are you, are you guiding for change? to what you want. And that's what I'm wondering about, where that ethical itch lies. I think the itch lies for me, it's, it's um, I mean, it's partly when, when I'm, when I just think about the different applications of MI um, and when I think about some, but I mean, I'll, I'll just put an example, you know, let's say people on different sides of the abortion would be, um, you know, there's an example where I think about like, people on each side of that debate could say, I'm gonna use MI to try to sway people to come to see things how I see them. And so there's one, you know, there's one where I think, ooh, that, um, I, do, yeah. Do you know many MI specialists that would say I'm gonna use MI to make them think how I think? No. No, that's a good point. No, <laughs> but perhaps, I mean, I think we bring our own values in. And so maybe we don't consciously say that and we wouldn't say, I want to make them think what I think, but there's a part of us that definitely feels like, I, I feel like I know what's, what would be best for this person. You know, there, there's a, there's definitely, that's playing a role, you know, in our, in our individual and we're looking at, I mean, you know, going back to like the origins and substance use, um, you know, when we approach uh, these conversations. That's super interesting. And um, David Rosengren asks this question. Uh, what, what if we just said that MI is a process that influences other people? How would we feel about acknowledging and embracing that? So... What, what about <laughs> that question to you, Carrie Pam, Kendall? You know, am I is a, a is a process of influencing people. I'm, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing. I'm just wondering. What's your initial reaction to that, Kendall or Pam or Carrie? Um, I, well, it, I think what can influence people is to listen. Uh, I don't think it's the influence on the outcome. It's, it, it, am I, in my experience, sets a tone 
that we're going to have a conversation. And you know the old saying, if you can't stand the answer, don't ask the question. So if you're going to ask the question or you're going to give a reflection, there it is. And it may or may not be, or may not may or may not sit with you the way you had hoped, but there it is. And if you've made that commitment to hear, to listen, then I think that's that, that is uh, that is one of the gifts of of MI. As a clinician, one of the gifts twenty years ago when I first started to learn about MI was that I wasn't responsible for the outcome of my caregiving, but I sure as heck was always going to be responsible for providing the best care. But that it was, it really indeed was a partnership. Um, and my work is with adolescents. And in fact, one of the roles was to see all the pregnant adolescents. My role was not to tuck them into or out of doing this or doing that, but it was to be there to make sure they had the information, they knew about the resources and could be supportive. Would you say you were using MI? Yes. In what way? In the way to make sure that they were, um, knew that they had an opening or, or right for care in, through our clinic. In other words, sometimes we might say, oh, just going to put the head in the sand. I'm not going to talk with anybody. I'm not going to do anything and just withdraw. So the, there in the case is one example of the use of MI is to be able to have a conversation about the fact that they are in charge of themselves. It is their decision and that the people that surround them and the various caregivers are there for them, but they're in the driver's seat. And so if they decide to drive in a particular direction, you would be comfortable about using MI in a purposeful manner to amplify the value of that direction because it's it's rooted in a deeper truth for them. Yes. What are your thoughts, Carrie? So What's coming to mind is some some conversations I've had with a friend in um, this part of the, I used to work in um, with people with psychosis and psychiatric facility. And so a friend of mine um, works in peer services and he um, he's, we've had a lot of really interesting conversations about MI because he's spoken with a lot of people, other um, people who have received psychiatric services who um report having had the experience of a practitioner kind of using MI to get them to take medications to um, like diminish their voice hearing, for instance. And, um, and it was not for many of these people, it was not a good experience. They actually like found their voices to be comforting um, and they didn't do very well when they went on these medications. And I think it's this very interesting example of, in this case, perhaps the practitioners just had, you know, this thought that like hearing voices is an issue that we need to address. And I can see them, 
you know, using MI, or I guess you could debate about whether this was this kind of fits in MI or not, um, but using kind of the, the approaches we talk about to try to sort of help people see how problematic hearing voices is for them and that they're, you know, and kind of steering the conversation towards doing something about it, that something being medications. Um, and so I guess that that's the example that's that's coming to mind. And it's it's again one of these where, you know, what what was going on there that made it not helpful, not a good experience for those those individuals? And was it somebody, you know, deciding here's what I think is best for this person? I'm going to steer them in this direction. And that was influenced by more societal beliefs than really honing in on what's best for this individual. Um, was it something else? I don't know, but but I think those are those are the kind of debates I find so fascinating around this because I think that's when, you know, it's an example of when we need to just be so thoughtful about how we are guiding. Um, oh, and it looks like Michael, I know Michael's worked in this um, this population too. So it's like he might have some thoughts on it as well. Well, we'll go ahead and do the rounds of MI as a, a means to influence people. And what do mm -hmm. you think? Your reaction to that when Steve said that, read Dave's question. So I, I was reflecting on my emotional response to it. And my immediate thing was, you know, oh, that brings something up for me that that gives me some discomfort. And then another part of me thought, you know, okay, but if what I think I'm doing is to help the greater good, then surely everyone, then I'm fine with influencing everyone as long as they do whatever I tell them to. And that's great. Um, and I'm, I'm saying that glibly and I've had a glass of wine, but, but more, more to the point that I think sometimes, um, you know, when we're working with somebody who perhaps, or, or groups of people who are making decisions, which are potentially deviating from, what is classed as, you know, socially acceptable or healthy or, um, you know, motivational interviewing is a tool that can help influence conversation. Um, and we know that change talk is a big factor in supporting positive outcomes. But I also know that Bill will strongly say often um, you can't, you know, we can do all the MI in the world. If somebody doesn't want to change, they're not going to. And, and I strongly believe that too, um, that, you know, I can, and, and, and I'm sure everybody else is the same. You can pull out all the change talk. You can give as many affirmations as you could possibly wish for and build up their self-efficacy that change is possible. But if somebody doesn't want to, or they're not ready to, or it's not the right moment for them, they, it's unlikely they will, or certainly that it won't be sustainable. And again, the research would, would share that with us. And so I believe that a lot of people that make the changes that, through those conversations are often doing so because something within them feels like this is a right direction for them somewhere deep down there's something that feels that this is a positive process and Carrie in 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 your context you know what what strikes me there is I would question the use of motivational interviewing there because I would say is it appropriate that with these anecdotes, I guess, or with these scenarios, first of all, we have safeguarding, which is questionable in itself. But second of all, 
there's a power dynamic and actually Rick's put about power dynamics that, that's taken place between expert and patient. And somewhere along the line, the, the expert, the, the professional has made a decision that they are an expert over that person's life. And my understanding of MI is, you know, we're the experts in our field, but they're the expert over their own life. And, and when there's a, a discord in that relationship, that's when things have started to happen where we take away that person's autonomy about what feels right for them. And some we know that people, some people actually really thrive when they're able to live off medication and, and you know, and those elements. So I would question whether MI was really being truly delivered um, when when that's there. I don't know what whether that's fair and I'm making a huge judgment and what anyone says. Uh, thinks to that. Joel, what do you think? Well, I, I'm, I'm, I really appreciated something that Pam said, is that, you know, I'm not responsible for the outcome, but I'm responsible for doing the best job I possibly can. Yeah. And then tying that together with what you said, which I've heard so many people over the years say, that it's really difficult to help somebody change who doesn't want to change. Yeah. And, and all we can do is the best that we can do and give them the best information that we know today. Because as we all know, data changes over time. That's what the scientific method is all about. Yeah. So what we believe to be true today, based on the facts that sit in front of us, 25 years from now, that might be totally different. All we have to do in addiction treatment is look back at what the data told us how to work with people 40 years ago. Right. We've come leaps and bounds beyond locking people up and institutionalizing people and putting them on antipsychotics and, and, and using punishment as the main intervention. You know, we're moving significantly away from that. Um, and one of the things that sings out to me about motivational interviewing that, it, that really grabbed me from the beginning when I read the, Bill and Steve's first edition of the book was this sense of supporting people's autonomy. Because in the drug and alcohol field, and I've said this before, that I started working in in the early 80s, they, we took people's autonomy from them and said, we're the experts, you need to do what we say or you're gonna die. And so we, we and then we would give them their autonomy back incrementally, as long as they, as long as they kind of admitted they have the disease of addiction and they're never gonna use again. And they're going to go to, you know, 12 step meetings for the rest of their lives, um, which could have been really helpful for some people. But there are a lot of people that probably wasn't helpful for and it harmed people. Um, so I don't know. I've kind of given up thinking that 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 I well, I've given up. I I've. Um, I found a way to, to not believe that I know what's best for somebody. Hmm. And, and I agree with you, Kendall. I'm an expert. I have some expertise in a specific area. But if you're my client, you're the expert on yourself. And if we can come together and have a conversation and share information and ideas, then, then, then that might prove to be helpful for you to make informed decisions about how you want to be in the world. I guess that and to me, I'm fine with that being in mind. Yeah. And, and I think it is for me as well. It's that sense of curiosity. 
And oh, definitely. You know, I know, Steve, you talk about this. And, and often where I believe that the discord comes in between guiding and equipoise is I wouldn't, I would rarely go into evocation until I have engagement with somebody. And my understanding of engagement is not only our relational um, alliance is positive, but also are we on, are we able to have a conversation about change? And if that isn't there, then I wouldn't be going into trying to support evocation. And so if somebody wants to have a conversation with me about change and, and we can be curious and, hey, let's put a load of stuff on the table and let's just see what happens at the end of it, you know, and let's be curious about where it leads, we could hypothesize, then I think that to me feels more like a healthy MI conversation than some me trying to draw somebody into my bubble or my way of thinking. That That is where I really struggle with what the concept of MI is uh, or, or what people believe. Sorry, Steve. No, that's very good. I mean, I just, <laughs> I just felt my self nodding in agreement with everything you said. And uh, but I'm conscious of Michael Flam. Yes. Something. Could you bring it? the times? Uh, we've got ten minutes left, Joe. Yeah, we just pulled Harry up. He had something he wanted to say, and I'll bring Michael up, and we can um, we can bring these two close. Harry, are you there? Um, well, there's Michael's here. Oh, there's Harry. Oh, there's Michael. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind again? It's great to see you back. Yeah, I, you know, that itch that Carrie is talking about, I'm really sensitive to that itch. And so I think as Steve knows, because I've talked to him about this a while back, for the last couple of years, I've really been focusing on the boundary between what, at least in the medical world, we call shared decision-making and MI. And I'm convinced that the spirit of those two are completely overlapping, right? I have conversations in which I recognize that I'm in equipoise, in which I am in exactly the same spirit as I am in my conversations, autonomy respecting the whole business. But I ask myself, are there really good choices? Do I believe that there are a series of good options here. Does Carrie believe that not accepting a vaccine is a good option, is as good an option as accepting a vaccine? If you believe that, Carrie, then you're in shared decision-making, I think. If you don't believe that, then you have to be really careful about what you're talking about, about unconsciously shining lights on change talk and you know, rolling with sustained talk. And I don't think we pay enough attention to the technique. Uh, you know, we're getting on the other side of that complexity curve towards simplicity, but not everything is simple. And one of the things that's really hard is recognizing, for me, when I teach this, I put these vignettes that have subtle differences. Like, are you an equipoise here? Okay, now let's add this. Are you still in equipoise? And how are you going to change the conversation accordingly? And I think this all gets back to the, the topic of politics, which is transparency. And if we're not in equipoise, if I'm, a, if I'm going around to try to get people to do a better job with you know, their, their climate policies, I'm not in equipoise about that. And I need to know that. And I, need, I think I need to be transparent about that. I'll shut up because I know we're running out of time. No, no, stay on, Michael. That's fine. 
And I agree. I think if, if we're talking about motivational interviewing, it needs to be the same across different contexts, right? So you could have motivational interviewing for addictions, motivational interviewing with in sport or in classrooms or in you know climate change. But when you listen to those conversations, they should sound much more similar than different. And so I think what we're talking on, and we, you know, we it maps on to a broader, a broader conversation from the consulting room to the neighborhood or the community or the nation. It should it should be the same. Otherwise, you maybe what you're trying to do is have compassionate, nonviolent conversations with people around topics that are difficult to address otherwise. But that might not be motivational interviewing, even though they might have some of the spirit of MI in there. But then there is also perhaps a consideration, isn't there, that um, when we're talking about training MI and we're training people in a group, we're doing a behavioral intervention in training. Um, mm. And from a political sphere, if we're looking at how do you bring motivational interviewing in or, and can it be applicable within a political sphere, most political um, conversations are about, as we talked about at the beginning, some form of change or information exchange. And so why can't MI be used on that, on, on that collective space, just as it can be on an individual, on a group level? Why not be it more in a you know, collective societal space as well? Because I, I wonder if there's you know, a huge difference when we look at collective societies that are making decisions or groups of societies that are making decisions what 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 would be different from a conversation that's motivational interviewing informed I, I would suggest that the spirit that goes across a variety of person-centered styles is entirely appropriate in these conversations I think the part that we're struggling with here or I'm struggling with here is recognizing when we go in with the idea that the conversation is going to be directional or not. Okay, and I, I you know, I'm looking, I'm looking, Michael, at David's useful question: What if we said that MI is a process of influencing others? And I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of we've just got five minutes left here, right? So. And I'm, David, I'm wondering if you would accept this, that MI is a process of influencing others in a direction that they hold dear and is congruent with what they really want. You know, can I add that right up? Because if I can, then I don't mind using this form of influence because it's, it's congruent with what they really want, which was felt like the the essence of what Pam was saying about the work that she was doing with these, these, these women. Um, and it is, that would be directional. That would be directional. Fine. It's congruent yeah. with, with what they hold dear. So, and if that's a form of influence, that's fine by me, Michael. Doesn't that come back to value aligned action ultimately? I don't know what that phrase means. So, so in terms of being congruent, 
you know, this concept of that we have these core values that, that, that guide us, but often sometimes our behaviors deviate from those values for various different reasons we, we can divert, dive, uh, divert or that they have conflict with other values, i.e. survival. Oh, I see. So it's their values you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, if, if, that, if that embraces carrying on using drugs and you've got a good connection with someone and that's what they would like to do, well... Mm. Mm. how does influence we're back to deeper truth says heather latch <laughs> yeah yeah um, hi heather and, and, four minutes um, later. yeah well just to add to your is it joel did you just put about how does influence fit with fit with, with persuade yeah doesn't it come back to autonomy because we persuade with permission? So, so if you look at the mighty code, you've got persuade, persuade with permission or information exchange. So influencing, again, if you're doing influence, if you're, if you're doing influencing, if you're having a conversation where you're sharing information and you're guiding and you're evoking change talk and you're doing it with somebody's knowledge and permission and with transparency, and they want to go there, they will tell you if they don't by bringing up sustained talk. Or push back and just say, I'm not gonna talk about that, or I don't yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Or they'll give you disguised compliance and tell you what you wanna hear and then do nothing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know Harry's got his hand up as well. Yeah, I've asked Harry to come online, but I'm not sure what's happening. Are you there, Harry? Hey, what's, what's your thought? There you are. Can you hear me? Yes, loud and clear. Oh, yes. great. Thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I just want to mention that uh, in the midst of our COVID virtual forum in 2020, uh, I facilitate a workshop called MI for Global Survival. And in that workshop, I wanted to explore many of the same questions we're discussing here, uh, specifically in the context of how can MI have a global application in coping with climate change. And uh, we had some good participation, and I was fascinated to learn that there are places around the world where Mentees uh, have already been doing this work with MI, and I think there's room for a lot more of it to happen. Uh, there is a recording of it. Uh, I don't know if it's easy to find, but if any of you want to uh, get hold of it, if you'll send me an email uh, or through the listserv, uh, I think I can get you the link. Why don't you but type your email address into the chat? Because when, when we have many more people in here, no one of the listeners will know what is on the call, on the conversation. Okay, I'll try to add it to the chat. Um, and uh, let me leave it there. Uh, it'll be interesting to explore this further. But I'd just like to add, uh, I hope David Rosengren is right. If MI doesn't influence people, I'm not sure that we'd be having these conversations. Uh, and I think that, uh, it's going to become very, very important for folks who are currently struggling to have conversations together for the common good, to find the tools that are going to enable them to overcome what's dividing us now, not just in the United States, but in cultures all over the world. Thank you, folks. Yeah, thanks, Heather. Much appreciated. I wonder if it might be a way to have a conversation 
for people to influence themselves yeah. in terms of resolving their ambivalence. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. That's a good point, Dave. That's something to ponder for sure. Now I'll be thinking about it. Um, now I'm, I'm aware of the time and I'm aware there's a lot of matches going on at the moment. So I don't want to hold anybody up. Um, but anybody have any closing thoughts uh, before we say good night, good day, and good morning? I think the you're, last you're, point. You're, go ahead, Pam. Your microphone's off, Kendall. Good. Oh, sorry. Your last point, I think, is really key. When we say influence, it's the self awareness, the insight that can come from having a, a truly um, a truly consistent with MI conversation. Um, so it's not just influence. It's it's not just something, a, a, a fact or a truth or or some shaping that person A gives to person B. It's the back, it's the give and take and that mutual light bulb going on and, and for, for folks uh, that I think is so rich. That sort of connecting of the dots and that aha moment. Yeah. Kendra, what do you want to end up with? I just, I mean, first of all, say thank you for inviting me um, on here and for everybody's input and also making me think. I mean, the fact that we've made David Rosengren think is pretty impressive as well, I think, uh, as well. But my, a lot has come up for me as it often does around things around power. Um, and I know that Ritz put that in, but I, I would say that power fits into every conversation that ever takes place, and especially from an evolutionary perspective, um, that it that it does. And we need to be incredibly aware of that uh, at all times. And I also think that MI can really fit with what Pam's saying around, let's just be curious. If we're not coming at it from a perspective of I'm right or expert led, and I can have a shared conversation, then so that's so much, as Pam says, richer. And with my clients and from a political perspective, it's like, let's put it on the table and explore it so that we're both safe here. Let's have psychological safety to have these conversations. And then let's see what we want to pick up at the end of it that feels right for each of us. And I think that can happen on a micro and a macro level. Mm. I'm incredibly passionate about politics and about socialization and, you know, the supporting humanity to grow in a positive um, kind of harmonious way as best as it can. And I know I'm naive in that way sometimes as well. But but for me, motivational interviewing has been the thing that I've found grounds me the most during those conversations. When I'm getting overly passionate and overly activated, MI is the thing that keeps me engaged in that personal conversation where I can hear the other person rather than wanting to, you know, scream my opinion. Um, so that's that's what I think. Uh, and yeah, thank you everyone for your time. Thank you, Ken. That's been great. Always fun to talk to you. Um, Carrie, do you have any closing thoughts? Just when can we do this again? Because I don't want to wait a year to have these kinds of conversations. So I hope we can do this again, Sam. This has been really wonderful, and I appreciate all in organizing this. Okay. Well, we'll hold you in mind for sure. For sure. Michael, how about you? You've been with us the whole ride. 
Just thanks. Good to see everybody. Really appreciate it. Good to see you too. And Pam, do you have anything you want to end up with? Um, well, I, it, watching the um, the soccer, it makes you realize what a small world we are. And Steve's doing his <laughs> soccer dance. Oh no, it's Wales scored now. Yes, and yeah. walking, the, walk, seeing players walk with the hand of children. That's all. That that's that sense of community, and that's okay. that's what you're giving us. So thank you. Great. I think Steve's done. He's unpacking his dishwasher. Um, all right, guys. Um, much appreciated. It's lovely to spend the time with you. I've enjoyed the conversation. I had no idea which way it was going to go or what we were going to talk about. But that's kind of the fun of these webinars because we don't know what's happening as Steve does his victory dance. All right, y'all. Um, have, um, have a good day. Have a good evening. And until the next time we're hanging out together, we'll see you around. Thanks, everybody, Thank for coming. Thanks, Joel, for organizing it. Thank see you, Steve. Thank I'll you. talk to you soon. Hey, did Wales win, Steve? Ribby Poobah, a yee haw, book em. <laughs>